pardon my water bottle. Let's go ahead and take our Bibles this morning and turn over to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. Chloe was picking on me a little bit last week because she happens to know that Paul is one of my favorite characters out of the scriptures. Paul just like is a guy you can get excited about. And so whenever I preach out of Paul's epistles, his letters to the churches and to individuals, uh, a little bit of my excitement tends to show through and she thinks that's funny, which is, is fair. Although I would say in my defense, Paul writes some good stuff. Like, you know, you, you come along and you, you read along with Paul and, and Paul's excited and it's hard not to get caught up in his excitement. He's a man who God used to pen a huge portion of the New Testament and, and it's just hard not to get excited with him. So Colossians chapter 2, actually, you know, I made one mistake here. I shouldn't have let you sit down yet. Let's stand again because I want to read through our passage together and we want to honor God's word as we do that. So Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Go ahead and read them with me off the screen if you would. For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, and attaining to all the riches of the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words, for though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him, who is the head of all principality and power. Let's open with a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we just thank you for what a rich view you give us of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. As we read through the pages of Scripture, we just get to see him in all of his glory and in all of his splendor and in all of his awesomeness. And Lord, as we look at just another piece of that this morning, look at at Paul's passion for our growth and our maturity in Christ, that we would catch a little bit of his excitement this morning and that it would have an impact on how we live our day-to-day lives and how we spend our time growing close to Christ and in his word. We thank you and praise you now in Christ's precious name. Amen. Thank you, and you may be seated. The mandate for the church, the the reason for the church to exist, the, the, the central thing that the church is to do is laid out in its simplest form by Christ at the close of Matthew 28. If, if you remember back with me, we're here looking at the last few moments of Christ's time here on earth. He's died and resurrected He spent some time with his apostles and other disciples teaching them and encouraging them and preparing them for that which is ahead. And and as we get to the last few verses of chapter 28 of Matthew's gospel, we find Christ and uh, from other passages of scripture, we know some 500 plus disciples. This is the whole church at this point gathered together outside of Jerusalem And as they watch, Christ gives this commission, this charge to his church just before he ascends into heaven 
with the promise that he will return for his church in the same way. These words are very familiar to us. Matthew 28, verse 18, And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age." This is a passage that has been preached and and shared as a call to evangelism and missionary work very often. And it certainly calls us to both of those things. But I would argue that it's more than that. Stop and consider the context for a moment. This is not Jesus at a leadership retreat with the 12 disciples. We have those passages in the New Testament where Jesus is alone with the disciples and he encourages them and instructs them in a way that's unique to them as the coming founders of the church. That's not what this is. This is not Jesus with uh, some select group, even maybe more than the disciples. This is effectively the entire church. All of those who believed that Jesus was who he claimed to be and sustained that faith through his death and burial and resurrection and came to accept him as their Lord and Master in those days following the resurrection, all of them, the entire church at this point, some 500 we know from Paul's writings in 1 Corinthians, are gathered here together in one place, in one moment. And it is to them, as the entire church, that Christ here speaks. The church here gathered around their Lord and Master and awaiting, according to His command, for the coming day of the Holy Spirit and the power that would accompany the Holy Spirit they're, they're gathered here. They're waiting on his every word. They know their time is short. They've been asking about that. They've been seeking his direction. He's made it clear that he's about to leave them and the Holy Spirit's about to come. And they're at once by that. They don't want him to go. And also conflicted over that. They, they don't want him to go and there's a, a leap of uncertainty That comes with that. Christ has promised them that what's coming is better for them. And yet it's new and different. And we all know how well we as a human race tend to handle new and different, right? We're known for our ability to just jump right in and love change. Not so much. And so as they face this daunting task, they stand here and they listen and and they hear Christ in his last few moments standing on this earth in the flesh, calling them to a ministry of discipleship. The charge here that is given is not a charge of church leadership. It's not to the academic leaders of Christianity. It's not to some select group of missionaries or future evangelists. It's a charge to the church as a whole, and it's a simple charge. Make disciples. I know pastor is often mentioned, and it bears repeating, English is sometimes a little bit of an obtuse language. And as you read that verse, you may be tempted to believe that the command, the first command you stumble on, is go. In reality, it's not. The first command is make disciples. A more literal, less comfortable in English, but a more literal translation of that would actually be something to the effect of, as you're going, make disciples while you do that. Whatever you're doing, wherever you're going, wherever God takes you, be making disciples. That's the mandate of the church. That in everything she does, we would be making disciples. A disciple is not merely one who hears the gospel, not merely one who responds even in saving faith, though their journey of discipleship starts there. 
A disciple is one who is growing into the image and character of Christ. It is a follower of Jesus and not a mere assenter to some bare facts. And so all that the church does is called on to be governed by this mandate. Make disciples. We train pastors. The Northeast Fellowship has recently launched the Northeast School of Theology and Ministry. That, that is a ministry that is launched expressly with the purpose of training pastors so that the churches will have pastors and can more effectively make disciples. Do we conduct Sunday schools and vacation Bible schools and soccer clinics and all manner of other activities for the youth? Yeah. So we can make disciples. So we can train the next generation. We preach and we sing and we counsel, we conduct outreach, we support missionaries. All of these things, everything that the church does is called upon to support this mandate that we be making disciples. That is a process that begins with proclaiming the gospel, but does not end there. It's a process that continues throughout the entirety of a believer's life. It's a process that only finally reaches its completion. And pastor's favorite verse from 1 John, right? When we become like him because we see him face to face finally when we stand in glory. There is no disciple in all of history who can say that they have arrived while still on this side of glory. In our human imperfection, we are and all still continue to be and will be as long as we live making progress towards that goal of being more Christ-like. And so the, disciple, the process of discipleship is an ongoing one from the moment we first hear the gospel and the Spirit of God begins to work in our hearts by the power of God's Word to the moment that we step out of this life and finally see our Savior face to face and are made complete in Him in a moment. Discipleship happens anywhere, anytime God's people are gathered together whether that's in our own homes as families, whether that's gathered together for a Bible study with other believers, whether that's at a formal service of the church, or whether we're having hot dogs out back around the campfire, where God's people are gathered together and encouraging one another and building one another up in the truth, discipleship is happening. Paul's great passion for the churches he ministered to was that he might support and encourage that discipleship that was happening in them. Correcting where needed. Encouraging where needed. Teaching where needed. And sharing in joy where possible. All of these and more. So long as he could build up the church and support its ministry, its mandate, its purpose for existing, to make disciples Paul wanted to be involved. Here, as Paul writes to the church in Corinth, he's particularly warning again, them against the false philosophies and the false teachings of the, that are influenced by the world that have begun to creep into the church. Those things that sounded spiritual on the surface, but were not in accordance with the Word of God and therefore harmed the growth and discipleship of the church rather than encouraging it. You know, as Paul was a steadfast believer in the principle that what you believe will impact how you behave. You know how I know that? Look at every single letter that Paul ever wrote to a group of believers. His letters to individual pastors are a little different. But every letter he writes to a church, to a group of believers, every single one starts out with an extended portion of theology to correct your thinking before he moves on and starts beginning to address practical issues for the behavior of the church. Paul was grounded in this reality that we need to think rightly before we can begin to act rightly. 
Our thinking needs to come into agreement with the Word of God and be influenced by God's thinking so that it can begin to have an impact on our behavior. Notice the verses that precede our passage this morning. Look back as far as verse 24 of chapter 1, just a a few verses before chapter 2 begins. Listen to what Paul has to say. He's writing to the church here. And he says, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. The mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. To whom God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end I also labor, striving according to his working which works in me mightily. Paul says, look, I'm, I'm writing to you because I struggle in myself and, and at times I've suffered for the church. At times I've gone through hardship and trial and, and all of my focus and all of my goal is on this mystery that God had hidden in ages past. It, it was unknown to the Old Testament saints, but it's now revealed to you that through the work of the Holy Spirit, Christ lives in you and gives hope of glory. To that end, to the end of proclaiming Christ and Him crucified, to the end of teaching and training, he says, I preach and I warn and I teach and I train that in the end I might present every man perfect, complete, a finished disciple before my Lord and Master Jesus Christ. That's Paul's motivating goal. That's what drives him as he ministers and works for the church. And can I say that is the heart of godly church leadership, not just in Paul, but in all ages, to recognize their responsibility before God for the flock that God has set them to minister in and to bear the burdens and the sufferings and the hardships of that ministry, not out of a complaint and not out of some kind of grueling duty, but out of a love for the flock and a passionate desire to see discipleship happen, to see the church grow and look more like her Savior day by day. So let's look at this passionate desire. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, Paul shows us his passionate desire for the churches. Paul's passionate desire for the churches. He says, For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love and attaining to all the riches of the full knowledge or full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge." Paul was always a man of great passion and energy. Before his conversion, he was passionate for the law and the rituals of Judaism, so much so that he was unrivaled in his devotion to the Jewish cause. He was traveling around, persecuting the church, seeking to stamp it out because he saw it as a detractor from and a rival to the Judaism that he loved. And after his conversion... His passion became for proclaiming the truth and supporting discipleship in the churches that God called him to minister among. And we see here the heart of that passion, that all those who were among the Gentile churches where Paul was called to minister would be encouraged, would be knit together in love, and would be attained to the full riches and wisdom of the knowledge of God. As Paul is looking at this, as he's expressing this, notice that he says he's in great conflict. From various passages of Scripture, we know Paul was not a very large man. He he was small. He was not imposing. 
He was not a physically dominating man. I mean, you know, you know, there's just certain people who you interact with who they almost seem bigger than they really are. Growing up as a kid, we had a guy who, he was a great youth leader in our church. He, he was about 6'2", and he was a corrections officer. One of the gentlest and nicest guys you'd ever want to meet in his normal day-to-day life. But he was a corrections officer, and, and he cultivated a presence in order to aid in that job. And he was probably about 320 pounds of solid muscle when I knew him. And he'd walk into a room and just, he was there. And you knew he was there. That was not Paul. Paul was the little guy, kind of stooped and small and and almost appearing insignificant. In fact, as you read through the two letters to the Corinthian churches, you kind of glean that one of the things Paul's detractors were attacking him for is they were warning or they're trying to discourage the church in Corinth and they were saying, look, that Paul, you don't have to worry about Paul. Don't you remember what a little guy he is? Like he writes a nice letter, but what's Paul to look at? He's not even a very good preacher. When he stands up and talks, he's not that eloquent. He's a genius, but he's not smooth and pleasant to listen to. He doesn't have a presence about him that draws you in. When Paul says he's in a conflict here, he's not talking about some kind of physical altercation. He's saying, look, I'm struggling in myself. I have a a spiritual battle that I am engaged in trying to support the church. Satan on every hand is trying to thwart my efforts. The Gentiles in various cities are trying to cast me out. Paul goes through this list at one point in his epistles where he talks about how many times he's been shipwrecked this many times and stoned this many times and in beatings often and thrown into prison. Over and over and over again, Paul is abused and persecuted and tortured for his preaching of the gospel. He says, look, I'm here, I'm writing to you, not because from some distance I want to just kind of beat you up about some mistakes you've made. I'm writing because I'm engaged in the spiritual battle. I want to encourage you. I want to see you grow. I'm writing because I love you desperately and I'm committed to the work that God is doing in you as a body of believers. I'm in this conflict for your spiritual growth. This struggle was centered on his three desires for the church, all of which are important aspects of discipleship that we, will seek to, we still seek to maintain in our churches today. Notice first, verse 2, he says, I, I'm writing to you, I, I desire this for you, I struggle for this, that your hearts may be encouraged. That your hearts may be encouraged. Paul is not speaking here of merely having some superficial words of support to pass on to them. He's not just trying to share a couple of anecdotes, you know, a, a few words and a pat on the head and send you on your way. But rather, he's speaking here of the fact that when God's people gather together and worship rightly together, their hearts are encouraged and uplifted. Nothing brings joy that transcends our circumstances like worshiping together. You know, there's an illustration that is kind of part of my life. Some of you know, some of you don't. I'm a very nerdy person. I I admit that very freely. Uh, I'm nerdy about my theology. That's one of the things Tim and I get along really well on that wavelength. But I'm also kind of a tech nerd that, that fits in with my day job. And writing software is a piece of that. I I write custom software on occasion for my day job. And there's this illustration that dawned on me one day as I was doing that that I think helps us understand this really well. We all have these wonderful things, cursed things, depending on how you view them in any given moment, that we carry around all the time and they buzz and they ding and they do things and whatever. And we can get so focused on these And they can take up our whole world. It's a tiny little screen. But it's right here. 
And it can dominate our perspective because it's right here. And we miss the bigger picture that's out and around us because we've got it so close right here. That's what often happens in our day-to-day lives. We get fixated upon some little thing. And it's not a big thing. It's not a life-changing thing. It's not an earth-shattering thing. But it's the thing that's right here in front of us. And because it's so close, it dominates our perspective. And we miss the big picture. We miss what God's doing in our lives. We, we miss the opportunities that are going on around us because we're fixated right here in front of us in this moment. That's what Paul is encouraging us to set aside. He says, look, I want you to be encouraged. I want you to gather together. I want you to worship together. I want you to grow together as a body of believers because when you come back to the Word of God and put your eyes back on Him where they belong, all of the little things fade back into the level of importance they're supposed to have. And our joy and our peace that we have in Christ takes the place in our lives that it's supposed to have. Nothing brings that joy like gathering together to worship. That's honestly why the author of Hebrews writes and encourages us not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the day approaches. He's looking at all the trouble that's ahead of them and he's warning the church that trouble is on the horizon. He says, as trouble gets closer and closer, as these things begin to crash in on you and they begin to take over your perspective, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. You need that reset. You need that time to refocus on Christ. And put your perspective back where it belongs so that you can be encouraged and uplifted and strengthened as you gather together and worship. We need that. Not only does he desire for the church to be encouraged as they gather together and worship, but he says he desires that their hearts may be knit together in love. Paul is never a fan of superficial unity. He regularly calls for casting out those who hold, hold or teach false doctrines. He regularly takes clear and divisive doctrinal positions and asserts that truth does and must divide God's people. The truth invariably divides from error. The truth of God's word invariably draws the believer away from the world. The world seeks a kind of outward unity. Tolerance, they like to call it. Everything's okay, everybody's okay, it doesn't matter what you believe, it doesn't matter what your perspective is, it doesn't matter what your ideas and philosophies are, all of them are equal and all of them deserve equal merit, equal time, equal endorsement, unless you're a believer, those ideas don't matter. But every other idea deserves equal footing. That is not a biblical idea of unity. That is not at all what Paul is calling for in the church. Scripture maintains that such a false outward-only unity is broken from the beginning and will ultimately cause harm where the unity of God's people is centered in the truth of God's word. As we all draw closer to God's Word, as we all understand it more clearly, as we all grow more into the image of Christ, we invariably grow closer together. We invariably grow where we think more like each other. You know, one of our great goals as the leadership team in the church, one of the things we talk about regularly, probably almost ad nauseum it might seem like, is that we want to be unified on issues. There's a lot of things that we talk about and we don't do anything with. And then next month we talk about some more and we don't do anything with. And then next month we talk about some more. The point of that is not just to wear ourselves out. It's that we want to be in agreement with God's word. And so we're going to keep talking about it and praying about it and trying to gnaw it over and work through it until we all get to a place where we all see it the same way God sees it so that we can 
A, be in unity with him, and B, be in unity with each other. We talk regularly about this idea that every discussion we have is either a matter of principle or preference. If it's a matter of principle, then we have an obligation to agree with God's word on the issue. If there's a principle in there, we need to find it, find it in God's word, and we need to get ourselves in alignment with it. If it's a preference issue, somebody pick something and let's move on. Seriously, like, if it's a preference issue, my grandfather used to say preferences are like armpits. Everybody's got them, most of them stink. You know, I, like, everybody has one. Why, why does mine get the highest priority? So somebody just pick something and let's move on if it's a preference issue. But if it's a principle, then we need to get in alignment. We need to find unity around what the Word of God teaches. And however much time that takes, however much effort goes into that, that is effort that is well spent. And Paul says here, as you gather together, as you worship together, as you are the church together, growing up and being discipled together, it will knit your hearts together in love. Your love for God and for the truth of his word will grow into a love of each other as you Surround yourselves with and immerse yourself in the Word of God. As we gather and encourage one another, as we worship and learn and disciple together, we are being knit together by the Word of God into the body of Christ. And finally, Paul says, as you are growing together, as you're discipling together, as you're gathered as the body of Christ... He says, you are attaining to all the riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden the treasures of knowledge and wisdom. Boy, that's a mouthful. The full knowledge and understanding of the mystery of God. This stands in contrast to the false teaching and the vain philosophies of the world that were creeping into the church at this time. The world and the false teachers always claim to have some kind of hidden, superior, deeper knowledge. They, they've discovered something that nobody else has ever figured out before and, and they'll share it with you for 1995, right? Pre, prepaid, yes. Just send your check here. And I'll reveal to you how you can have, you too can have that deeper walk that only I can give you with God. There's a huckster's pitch that hasn't really changed much in a couple thousand years. False teachers deride the truths of Scripture as childish, desperate, and ignorant, and they claim for themselves a better knowledge. Paul is not here speaking of that kind of mystery that kind of hidden knowledge so-called when he refers to the mystery of God. Rather, he's merely referring to those things that were formally unknown. When Paul talks about a mystery in his writings, he's not talking about something where you got to figure out who done it. He's saying, look, there were things that in the Old Testament economy to Israel, those things had not been revealed yet. But now we have something better. Now we have Christ and there are all of these things that we now learn and know and understand better through Christ and through the writings of the apostles that we never knew before. And so he says, I want you to know as you're growing together, as you're being knit together, as you're being encouraged together, you're growing into a fuller, a deeper, a better knowledge of those things about Christ that were formerly unknown. Those things that were hidden for a time were mysteries. And the people of God now learn them and rejoice in them as we grow ever more perfect or complete in our knowledge of God. For it is in God and specifically in Christ that all the treasures of knowledge and wisdom are found. Christ is the revealer of the Father. 
That's the theme in a lot of ways of John's gospel. You read through John's gospel and over and over and over again, Christ makes these claims that if you want to see the Father, look at me. If you've seen me, you'll see the Father. I'm only here to do the Father's will. Over and over and over again, he makes it clear his ministry was to reveal the Father to the world. Everyone has their ideas about who God is. Israel had a lot of ideas about who God was. But if you want to see him as he reveals himself, you have to look at Christ. Christ is the the ultimate, the final revelation of the Father. He is the incarnate word. That's a a little bit of a a word play, a figure of speech. It's a way of saying that if you could wrap up everything that you need to know about God, if you could express that in a moment like you'd read a book, you'd have standing before you Jesus Christ in the flesh. He came to live and breathe and act and speak and teach the Father's will that we might know who the Father is and have a right relationship with Him that's not possible outside of Jesus Christ. All the wisdom, all the seeking of the world, all that the world has to offer, every bit of knowledge that's ever been gained, Solomon says if you have all of that and you have it apart from a right relationship with God, it's all vanity. It's all emptiness. It's the blowing of the wind. It's here for a moment and gone the next and it gains you nothing. Only in Christ is there true wisdom and knowledge and understanding. And so we grow as we study together, as we mature and are discipled together in our knowledge of Jesus Christ. So Paul's great desire here for the church is that as we gather and minister and are discipled together, these three things would be true. That we'd be encouraged, that we'd be knit together, and that we'd be growing in our knowledge of Jesus Christ. But he doesn't stop there. Pick up in verse 4. Chapter 2 and verse 4, he says, Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words, for though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Paul says the truth is the best defense. His fear for the church here is that someone would creep in and deceive them with persuasive words. He says the false teachers are creeping in on you. They slink in out of the shadows. They come in around the edges of the church and they seek to deceive and draw away the church from the truth of God's word. It is helpful at times to know the shape and the nature of an attack that we're facing, particularly when an attack is common or when it's pressing in on every side. But most often, our best defense against the false teachers of the world and against the distractions and errors that so easily pull us away from our duty is not a thorough study of a particular falsehood, but rather a deeper commitment to and understanding of the truth. Paul was cautious and he gave a warning here to the church. He says, I'm not present with you. I'm not there to stand by your side. I'm not there to help you and encourage you in the midst of this time of difficulty. I can't support you face to face. But I'm here with you in spirit. I'm praying for you. I'm encouraging you. I'm, I'm rejoicing because of the steadfastness that you have in the truth that's reported back to me. And he calls out to them to do two practical things to defend themselves against the false teachers who are creeping in. First, verse 6, he says, Continue to walk in Christ the same way you have received him. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Or to put it another way, as you were planted, as you were rooted, 
so continue to grow and be built up. This is an argument that Paul regularly makes in his epistles. We were not saved through our own wisdom. We're not saved through our own works. We're not saved through our own keeping of the law or rituals or anything else that we contributed. Our salvation was a work of God in us. In as much as you could possibly say that we did anything, all you can say that we did was respond to the work of the Holy Spirit and recognize our need. And so, as we were planted, as we were established through faith in Jesus Christ and faith alone, so we must continue walking day by day through faith in Jesus Christ. As we grow, we have to recognize our need and allow the Holy Spirit to work. You know, there there are some things as we read through Scripture, that we have to understand what's going on in the context in order to make them applicable to ourselves. You, you read a lot in the New Testament about Paul in particular, but also, also the author of Hebrews, arguing against this pressure the early church was facing to fall back into the Jewish rituals and customs in order to try and perfect themselves somehow by a means of legalism. The entire book of Galatians we talked about last week is on that theme. You were saved by faith. Don't go back to the rituals and works of the law now. Well, there are not very many believers in modern American churches who are struggling with the temptation to go back to Jewish rituals from the early first century A.D., It's just not a thing that happens very often. I don't see very many of you with phylacteries and fringes and worrying about what the exact mixture of fabrics in your clothes is and all of those things that are part of the Jewish law. That's not the temptation we face. But we still face the temptation to try and add our good works to our salvation. The temptation to feel like, well, now that I'm saved, I'm a good person and I can do it from here. And nothing could be further from the truth. When God saves us, he doesn't make us good people. We're still desperately wicked sinners. We still struggle with our sin nature day in and day out for the rest of these earthly lives. He makes us redeemed. Praise God too. If it were dependent on us to continue doing good things, to continue living a life that honors Him, we wouldn't make it. We'd fail, each and every one of us. Starting with me. But salvation is not about us becoming good people. It's about Christ taking our place Accepting our sin debt so that he might place his righteousness on us. We will one day be made good people when we stand before him and he completes his work in us. But that day does not come in this life. It comes when we stand before him. And so Paul encourages the church here. Don't get distracted. Don't fall in the trap of thinking that now that you're saved, you can do this. Now that you're saved, you've got some litany of works that you have to do. If only I show up to this many services and put some money in the offering plate or in the box out back or donate online. If I sing the songs loud enough or right enough or if I'm willing to help in this ministry or that ministry, those things will move my salvation along. Not a bet. None of that or anything else you can do earns you a bit of merit with God. He's not looking for us to earn anything. He's provided in Christ everything. And he's just looking for us day by day by day to walk with Christ to honor Him, to put our faith and trust in Him, to accept that He's doing a work in us that we can't do ourselves. 
So as we grow, we have to recognize our need for the Holy Spirit's ongoing work. Our inability to save ourselves and our inability to add anything to our salvation. As we received Christ by faith alone, so we must continue to walk in Him by faith alone, putting all of our hope and trust in the fact that He will accomplish His good purposes. Not only that, second, he says we must continue to seek growth through the Scriptures. He says, rooted and built up in Him, Jesus Christ, and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. On the one hand, we we need to recognize that all of the work and all of the growth and everything that's accomplished will be accomplished by the work of Jesus Christ. And on the other hand, Paul says, look, we need to dig into the Scriptures and immerse ourselves in the Word of God, immerse ourselves in the opportunities that the Holy Spirit will use to accomplish that growth. Just as we were saved and that we heard the Word of God and the Spirit of God moved us by that power of His Word in a way that we could never accomplish on our own, if we are to continue in our growth if we are to grow in our discipleship, if we are to make progress in our spiritual lives, it will only be by immersing ourselves in the Word of God and allowing His Spirit to work in us in ways that we can never accomplish on our own. That is not to say that our studying and seeking in the Word of God allows us to accomplish anything ourselves but rather it's a recognition that God's ordained plan for humanity is that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Our spiritual life will never grow if we starve it and only allow it that that which we've already learned and heard and read. We need to be constantly digging in and making more opportunities to immerse ourselves in the word of God. Practically speaking, This means we need to be regular both in our Bible reading, in our Bible study. We need to be regularly listening to sound preaching of the Scriptures if we want to grow. Each one of those serves a different role in feeding the Spirit within us and giving the fodder that He will work off to encourage us and mature us. And cutting out any of those is dangerous. First, we need to be reading the Scriptures. We need to be allowing the Spirit of God to teach us from it. If we are regularly immersed in Scripture, we create opportunities for the Spirit of God to use the Scripture to meet the needs that we have. You know, one of the great parts about the richness and the depth of God's Word is that it meets needs in our lives, A, that we didn't know we had, but also it meets different needs in different lives out of the same passage. I'm always fascinated when I talk to somebody after I've preached or taught, and they get something entirely different sometimes, not less valid, but entirely different out of a passage than I had in mind when I preached it. Because the Spirit of God is at work in their hearts as God's word is applied to their hearts, just like the Spirit of God was at work in my heart when I was preparing and studying out that passage. God is not limited to doing only one work with a particular verse. And when we give ourselves access to, when we sink ourselves into his word and give him opportunity, he will meet the needs that we have in our thinking, in our growth, and our need for encouragement, and our need for peace, and our need for so many things as we study through His Word, as we read through His Word. Not only will, do we need to be reading His Word regularly, we need to be sitting down and giving ourselves some time to actually dig in and study. Not that we are going to figure it out and provide our own wisdom out of Scripture, But because Scripture is so rich and so expansive and and sometimes so culturally removed from where we're at today that we need to understand it better in order to unlock some of those opportunities for God to work in our hearts and lives. And the more work we put into our study, 
the more opportunities we create for the Word of God to enlighten us, to show us that nugget that was hidden in plain sight that we needed, but we never would have found without the right context and the right comparison with other passages of Scripture. Just a a cursory greeting does not answer the questions about every passage. I, I have a passage that's kind of my nemesis in Scripture. One of these days... I'll figure it out and and God will show me what it means. That day may be in glory. But there's this passage in the minor prophets where the the prophet is standing there and God gives him this vision. And he's watching these mulberry trees and there's horses riding through and the horses are different colors and, and the horses ride through and they're doing things. And then an angel walks up to the prophet in his vision and says, do you know what these things mean? And the prophet says, I have no idea. Can you tell me? And right up until that point, I'm with him. I'm like, yep, I have no idea either. The angel's going to tell us what it means. You know what the angel's explanation is? These are they that God sends to and fro throughout the earth, and then they move on and do something else. I don't know what that means yet. Someday God will unlock that here or in glory And I'll know what he's revealing there. I'll know what nugget of truth that needs in the time when God needs me to have it. There are passages like that that a cursory reading of just does not give us the sense of the passage and an understanding of what God's trying to teach us. And some of those need some effort and some work, some digging in, some reading of commentaries and of histories of the time and trying to figure out the cultural context of why they were, you know, why did they have mulberry trees there and all the various pieces that go into understanding that. And so there needs to be some real study in our lives, not just a few moments of reading from time to time. And finally, we need preaching. We need good sound books Good sound messages. You know, the the internet is a wonderful thing. There is more good preaching available now, easily gotten, than there ever has been at any other time in history. Now, there's a lot of bad preaching, true. You have to have some discernment about that. But there is more access to good preaching now than there ever has been in all of history. And I encourage you to take advantage of it. Find some preacher who's good and sound in the Word of God, and add him to your list of podcasts or, or put an app on your phone so you can listen to his radio station from time to time. Give yourself a chance to listen to that good preaching. You know why? Because the Spirit of God has been working in other people's hearts too. And God reveals different things to them than he reveals to me. And so if all I ever do is read and study that passage on my own, there are insights into the word of God. There are lessons that I need to learn that I may take a long time to get to by myself. But pastors already learned that lesson. And if I listen to him preach through that passage, it can be unfolded and spread out like a meal there for me, ready and waiting or John MacArthur, or whoever your favorite preacher is. And so we we need to be immersing ourselves in the Word of God. Paul says, rooted and built up in Him, established in the faith, as you've been taught, abounding in the faith with thanksgiving. Go back to those things that you've been taught and that you've learned, and sink your teeth in to the Word of God. Finally, I keep saying finally. Everybody's waiting for the finally to really mean finally. (laughs) Finally, Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. Thirdly, Paul calls on us to cling to Christ and abandon the world. He says, Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him, who is the head of all principality and power. Finally here, Paul warns us about abandoning Christ and abandoning following Christ in favor of the philosophies and theories and traditions and principles of the world. 
This may seem like something that should hardly need to be said in the church, but a shocking amount of the world creeps into our thinking and decision-making without our realizing it. And if we're not careful, it is perilously easy to wake up one morning and find ourselves suddenly far from Christ and entangled in the philosophies of the world. Satan is not a fool. He does not show up at the church one morning dressed in black, reeking of death, and chanting, down with God. He creeps in. He sneaks in. He comes in with words that sound like they belong. He comes presenting what seems to be wisdom. He shows up as an angel of light, whispering and subtly suggesting, and he connives and persuades with those things that seem reasonable, that seem like common sense, that appeal to our inclinations, and if we're not careful, do not even arouse suspicion. Paul says here, beware lest anyone cheat you. False teachers, and sometimes even our own thinking because of the deceitfulness of our hearts, cheat us and steal from us truth and joy and peace and growth that come with a right and strong and healthy relationship with Christ. They steal from those they can the chance to hear the true gospel and they steal wisdom and clarity that comes from God's word from those who are already saved. As Jude writes in his epistle, such men sneak in unawares. They're tricksters. They write books. They preach sermons. They appear at Christian conferences, on Christian television, and in, on Christian radio. They in subtle ways obscure and hide and hinder the truth, a little here and a little there, until someday, much to our surprise, the truth can hardly be found anymore. And what are their tools for this larceny, this theft, this cheat? Paul says, beware lest they cheat you through the philosophies of men. The ideas and the thinking and the plans and the genius of men. Beware of those who cite their own ideas. Beware of the thinkers of our day. Beware of the pop culture or anything more than the, they, they cite Scripture. If somebody's talking about something else and not the Word of God, your antenna ought to shoot right up. If they spend more time talking about uh, their favorite story or this tale or, or this guy who's their friend and what he thinks or what such and such said in his book and it's not time spent telling us what the Word of God says, we ought to be cautious. The philosophies of men, they often sound good, but they lead us away from the truth of God's Word. If you hear a sermon preached or read a book and it has more of man's words and ideas than at Christ's, then take it very cautiously. There's a saying in English literature that is true but is dangerous at the same time. This really came into being back early in the 1800s and it was said that all truth is God's truth. That is a true statement. God is the embodiment of truth. Inasmuch as anything is true, it's from God. But I, that's a dangerous statement. Because sometimes we hear something and we think it's true. And if we're not careful about comparing things back to Scripture, we can be led off astray thinking that we're following God when we're following the philosophies of men. No matter how well-intentioned or how reasonable an idea seems, if it cannot be defended from Scripture, it should be regarded with the utmost suspicion. Such philosophy, look at what Paul says. He says, through philosophy and empty deceit. He says, the philosophies of men, their, their emptiness. That, that phrasing may, always makes me think of Ecclesiastes. Some 40 times, in the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, the preacher, says, Vanity of vanities, all is vanities. Over and over and over again, all the thinking of men, it's all vain, it's all empty, it's all ultimately fruitless. It sounds good on the surface, 
People get doctorates in it and study their entire lives chasing the ideas of men. But if they're not rooted and founded in the truths of Scripture, ultimately it's vain and empty. Not only that, he says, but the traditions of men. Van, or philosophy and empty deceit according to the traditions of men. Those ideas that are commonly in, accepted and regarded in the world. Sometimes ideas take on a common sense and a popularity in the world that causes us to assume that there is a truth to them. But it matters not how well regarded an idea is, nor how long it has endured, nor even how sound it seems. If we cannot connect our thinking to Scripture, then it is ultimately folly. And finally, he says, according to the basic principles of this world, all ideas have a lineage, a heritage, and bad ideas breed more bad ideas. Once more, the point here is, is that an idea has its start in the principles of the world or in the principles of Scripture. And an idea that starts in worldly thinking, no matter how far it's taken, no matter how well an idea is developed, will never turn into a good idea if it started outside the pages of Scripture. If it's founded in the basic principles of the world and not in the basic principles of the Word of God, then it will never be anything but a bad idea. All of these, all that the world has to offer, stands in opposition to Christ. Look at Paul's presentation of Christ he says, all of thing, these things, don't be led away by them. Don't let someone cheat you with any of those things rather than following Christ. For in him, in Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. If you want to see the Father, if you want to know the Father, if you want to know what he wants from you and for you, look at Christ. I always love the opening passage of Hebrews. The author of Hebrews says, God who at sundry times in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. God's spoken all kinds of ways in the past, but if you want the final and the complete picture, if you want to get all of it pulled together, if you want to understand how it all works out, look to Christ. He is the one who ultimately reveals the Father. He is the one who ultimately gives light to and lets us understand the plan of salvation. Man, what, what a leap of faith. What a faith of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. They had no idea how God was going to work it out. They understood they had a sin problem and they understood that God said he was going to take care of it. No idea how he was going to do that. But they trusted that he was who he was. What's our definition of faith? Believing that God is who he says he is, will do what he says he will do and is ordering our lives accordingly. They looked at God and said, I don't know how any of this is going to work, but I'm going to follow him. That's still the call today. We have so much a clearer picture of how that works today. We get to see Christ, all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Verse 10 and we are made complete, we're made whole, we're perfected. The work of discipleship is finished as we are in him who is the head of all principality and power. He is the master. He is the creator of all things and he is the one for whom all things exist. And as we grow in him, as we are discipled and mature in our knowledge of him, as we see him more and more clearly and we worship him more and more fully as a result, we grow into a right relationship with him that one day leads us to stand in his presence as his children. Paul gives us two opportunities. He, he points to two paths here. 
He warns us against following after the world, warns us against following after really anything that distracts us from Christ and sets before us Christ as that which is worthy of following. Jesus Christ as the one who we must accept for salvation. His work and His work alone is sufficient to save. And His work and His work alone is sufficient to draw us closer to God day by day as we live our lives. Let's close there with a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for what a clear portrait we have of Christ. We are not as those from the Old Testament who knew that a promise was there, who knew that a Savior was coming, but, but had no clear idea of who the Savior was or of how that would work. You have revealed so much to us. You have shown us in Christ so much truth that we need to see. But the requirement is still the same that we accept that you are who you say you are and place our faith and trust in you, that you will deal with our sin problem and draw us to yourself. We thank you and praise you for these words of Paul. Pray that they would be an encouragement to us, that we would be taking Paul's practical steps of encouraging and building up one another as we grow in discipleship as a church, that we would be encouraging uh, the growth in ourselves as we study in the Word, as we follow after Christ day by day. We thank you and we praise you now in Christ's precious name. Amen.